So I warned you last week, you better find, be able to find a book. It's a tiny book. It's called Habakkuk or Habakkuk, right? No one actually knows how to pronounce it because it's an Akkadian word. We're just guessing. You could just say Billy and be as close as anyone else. So I call it Habakkuk because that's the first way I heard it said. Call it whatever you want. I don't care. Call it Billy. But it's hard to find, so you might want to find it because we're going to be there. Um, It's right after Nahum, which should help you a lot. (laughs) All right. And we're going to look at this for the next three weeks. Jesus. We are grateful to be in this place. We come today because not only do you speak in creation, your brilliance and your power, but you also speak through scripture, through men like Habakkuk and the lessons in the way that they spoke to you and heard from you is brilliant. And we want to be shaped by those things. So help us today, we pray. Speak. May we listen. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. I chose Habakkuk because um, he's unique as a prophet. Most of the prophets that you read in the Bible, they do this. They're like a fiery Baptist preacher that's calling God's people to repentance, hangs their heels over the fires of hell, right? When you're kicking coals in hell, you're going to wish you would listen to me. Like that's the prophets of the Old Testament, calling them back to Torah observance, right? That's most of them. That's not at all what Habakkuk does. He doesn't speak to God's people about their wayward ways, Habakkuk only talks to God about his ways. And what Habakkuk does is he complains to God. He lodges two complaints. The first complaint is this, God, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Why is there so much pain? You ever felt that way? That's his first complaint. And then his second complaint is this. And just to add to that, I don't like the way you run the universe. Right? You ever felt that way? I don't like the decisions you're making. I don't like the way you run the universe. That's his complaints. And the book really just kind of follows God interacting with the prophet as he's really complaining and angry at God a bit. So it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And we can feel that sometimes evil it feels more real than God, doesn't it? Because evil is all around us. We read about it, we see it, we witness it, and we're like, God, where are you at in the midst of this? God, your character is good and generous, but what I see everywhere I go doesn't reflect your character. So what's happening? What's going on here? That's the book of Habakkuk. Really amazing, brilliant great book. So let's read. And I'm really just going to jump off of this. I'll show you where, but listen to what Habakkuk does. It's a short book. He doesn't waste any words. He just right to the point. So the Oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet saw, Oh, Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear right, right out of the gates. 
There's no like, hey, you know, God, I'm so glad to be one of your kids and praise the Lord. It's awesome. And I've been reading and meditating in scripture and it's like honey on my lip. He doesn't have any of that, right? Right out of the gates. What's up? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth, perverted. Wow. Like, woo. His complaint is, God, I see all these evil, bad things happening, and you don't seem like you're doing anything. Why is there all this evil and suffering? Brilliant. So Wednesday, we'll actually look at this chapter and get the, the back and forth between Habakkuk and God. But all I wanna do today is try to hit that question. Why in this world do we see so much evil and suffering? And when I try to do it, by actually poking you. I'm gonna poke you today and you're probably gonna leave here mad at me. So if you leave here mad at me, I did what I was supposed to do, I feel like. So it's okay to be mad at me. You know, you can email me, you can do whatever you want. But I hope to make you mad because I think there are some things that we have built up in our lives that are wrong. So I wanna try to address suffering by asking you questions about suffering by poking you, okay? And then hopefully at the end of it, I'll be able to steer us into what I think is the right way to see these things, right? So here's question number one. Number one, is suffering part of God's plan? Is suffering part of God's plan? Here's what I tell people. I say, if you wanna know God's perfect plan, Genesis one and two, And Revelation 21 and 22 are the only two or only four chapters, two at the beginning, two at the end, the only four chapters in the Bible that tell us this is actually God's plan. Chapters one and two, Genesis, say this. God creates a really good space for humans. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He puts the humans there. He wants them to flourish. He wants them to be fruitful and multiply. At the end of that chapter, it says that the man and the woman, they were naked and unashamed. You know what that means? They could eat anything that they wanted and not gain weight. The paleo diet works, naked and unashamed. Right? It's brilliant. It's good. Awesome. God created a great space for humans to flourish. We go to the end of the Bible, chapters 22 and 21 and 22 of Revelation. What you have there is God creates a good space for humans called New Jerusalem. And it's there in that good space that humans can flourish once again. And it says this, it's Revelation 21 verse 7. It says, in New Jerusalem, there is no suffering. Chapters one and two, no suffering. Chapters 21 and 22, Revelation end, no suffering. So is suffering part of God's plan? If it isn't, why do we see so much of it around? Because I read the news, I talk to people, and the world is full of suffering, is it not? Suffering caused because men and women cheat on each other. 
suffering caused because of drug addiction now, turning parents into zombies and their kids being removed and shuttled into foster care after foster care after foster care home. And it hurts them and they're abandoned. Orphanages that are overflowing with kids and abuse and problems. Illness, cancer, just brothers dying too early, moms dying too early, right? When I looked around the world, I see a ton of suffering. So, okay, we get the bookends and the bookends are no suffering, but from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19, the 1,185 in between chapters, man, there's a ton of suffering in there. There's a ton of bad stuff, a ton of hard stuff. And it's actually that tension that Habakkuk is talking about. And we'll see that on Wednesday. That's the tension that he's like, I don't get it. God, you seem so good and generous, but I'm not seeing that in the world, right? So my answer to that question is no. That there was a bad choice by humans in chapter three that caused the record, the beautiful symphony that God desired where he would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, the beautiful symphony that God wanted skipped and went off key and it's been off key ever since. But at the end of the story, good news God redeems, does his greatest work as a redemption. So no, suffering is not part of God's plan. Here's the thing. It's the term aseity. So when you talk about God, there's these theological terms. One of them is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means this, God doesn't require anything else. So for God to get what he wanted, he doesn't require evil. He doesn't require suffering. That's his aseity. He doesn't require it. Now, is there a purpose or can God use suffering? That's a different question and one we'll address in a second. So number one, I say, no, God is not, or suffering is not part of God's purpose. It's not part of his plan. Now we'll get to massage that at the end, but that'd be my statement number one, to poke you. Poke number two is suffering. And when I say suffering, what I'm saying by that, it's the, it's the way of theologically saying evil, cancer, illness, injustice, all that together is grouped by theologians under the heading of suffering or the problem of pain, however you want to put it. So is suffering, when I suffer, is that God punishing me for sin? You ever ask that question? You ever had really hard things happen to you and then you begin to think in your mind, what did I do to deserve this? What sin in my background or what mistake did I make that now God is getting me and punishing me? You ever felt that way? It's very common. Is it right? So before I answer that, let me say, some suffering is self-inflicted. Have you ever heard of the Darwin Awards? Okay, the Darwin Awards is given to people that do really stupid things and then suffer the repercussions of those stupid actions, right? And most of that begins, most Darwin Awards begin with this statement. Dude, I got an idea. Here, hold my beer. Darwin Award, okay? That's not God getting you, that's just the repercussions of your actions. And there's tons of that. And the Bible says this, it's Numbers 32, 23. Moses, be sure your sins will find you out. Not God getting you, but rather built into the very 
Physics of earth is this cycle that if you do these things, they're gonna come back to you. If you plant bad seed, you'll reap a bad harvest. Be sure your sins will find you out. Or Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 2.19, he says this, your own backsliding, the way that you've been living, your own backsliding will reprove you. Built into your lifestyle will become will come reproof. Or Proverbs 6.32. That text says this, the man that commits adultery is not wise, he destroys his own soul. Who destroys his own soul? God getting him for that action? No, he by committing adultery, destroys his own soul. And when I think about how much strife and contention and violence is tied to that one sin, it's mind-boggling. It, destruction, no doubt about it, okay? So you have all those, all those verses, no doubt, and it's not God getting people, it's actually, it's actually, their own actions coming back and visiting upon them the natural repercussions. So is suffering God punishing you for sin? The key book in this is the book of Job. And the book of Job is much more complicated than it seems, right? So Job, did Job suffer? Yes. He lost everything, lost his kids, lost his cattle, lost everything, lost his homes. What's the one thing he did not lose? His wife, who in a brilliant moment said this to him, curse God and die. Oh, thanks, that's helpful. Yeah, okay. You should go into counseling because you'd be really good at it, right? And then immediately Job answers like this, and this is the answer that I'm gonna really poke you on. Job says this, God or the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that a right statement? It's an interesting statement. Are there places in the Bible where people, it's recorded, where people say things about God that are not true? Is there bad theology when people are talking about God in the Bible? Absolutely. Just read Job 42 verse seven, where God says this, the four friends that had come to Job and began to talk to him over the previous 30 plus chapters. And they had a theology of God in there. So these four friends are talking to Job about his situation. And then God at the end, Job 42 verse seven says this, you guys are wrong about me. So you can't go to Job, go to Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, and be like, I'm going to use his words to build a theology about God because God says he was wrong about me. But it's still recorded in scripture. So you have to be very careful from, from the context and what's being said to know, is this a true theological statement about God? Or is it rather someone who's mixed up? So Job you're supposed to read chapter one. And when you read chapter one, here's what happens. You get information Job does not know. What information do you get in chapter one that Job doesn't know? There's another character. And that character's name is, it's literally Hasatan, the accuser. And he comes and he's working something, right? So when you see that Job says, hey, God gave me this stuff and God took it from me, immediately in your mind, you're supposed to remember, wait a second, it's more complicated than that. There's another character in the Bible. 
And he's a bad character. And he's actually the agent that caused the death and the destruction in Job's life. So minimally, you're supposed to say, ho, 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 that's more complicated. Job, hold on a second. You suffered, no doubt. And the entire book, really, it's about this. The, the four friends that are wrong keep saying this to Job. God is punishing you for sin, repent. That's their whole point. And what's Job's answer to them every time? No, I didn't. I don't have some secret sin that God is punishing me for. I didn't secretly commit adultery on my wife or looking at porn or lie on my IRS form. I didn't do that. You're wrong. In fact, chapter one tells us that God said he is the most righteous man on earth. The man that suffered more than anyone else, God says he is the best on earth. Pretty amazing. So when you suffer, is God punishing you for your sins? If you are a believer in Jesus and you wrestle with this one, in your brain you go back like, why is God punishing me? I want you to listen to this text very carefully. And maybe you need to memorize it. But if you're a believer in Jesus, here's what has happened to your sin. Here's what God has done for you. It's Isaiah 53. Beginning in verse four. If you believed in Jesus, here's what's happened to your sin. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Why is there peace between you and God? Romans 5 verse 1 would say, you have peace with God because Jesus took your iniquities and your transgressions and he was crushed for them. That's what the Bible says. And yet we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Where's all your iniquity at? Laid on Jesus, all of it. So it's like this. Imagine a heavenly court case. And there I am. I'm on trial. And spread out before me is this massive scroll of every sin I've ever done in my life. And I'm guilty as charged. But then Jesus stands up and he says this, I paid for all those. Every one of those I paid for. The iniquity of Matt Heverly was laid on me at the cross and I paid for them. And it would be unjust for you to get paid twice for the same thing. And so the court says, all right. Stamps on that thing, paid in full, case dismissed. That's your sin. If you're suffering and you're a believer in Jesus, I can tell you 100% it is not God punishing you for your sins. Jesus took all the chastisement. He took all the bad for you and for me. That's the truth. And Jesus' disciples actually brought this point out. They're walking along John chapter nine. They see a man born blind, born blind. 
So they asked Jesus, they've got bad theology. Jesus, was this man born blind because the parents sinned or because this man sinned? Now, if the man sinned and he was born blind, when did he sin? In the womb. What in the world is that? Yeah, he kicked his mom's kidney. That's it, blind for you. I mean, it's insane, right? What does Jesus answer? What does he say? Neither. Your guys' theology is all messed up. No way. But this is actually for God's glory. No. Listen to me very carefully. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're suffering, it is not God punishing you for your sins. Question number three. God uses suffering to teach us a lesson. Now, I have to massage this one a bit because the answer is really depends in a way. But here's the point I want to try to make. In pastoral ministry, this happens from time to time. It's happened with two women who have lost their babies, newborn babies. And they've said this to me after the grief and after the tears and all that. They've said this. They've said, God must be trying to teach me a lesson. And it's very hard for me to even hear that because I'm thinking, so God killed your baby to teach you a lesson? Is that what you're feeling? Is that what you're, like, what is that? Is that what we're saying? The theological term for this is called apparent purpose. That God has an apparent purpose for stuff like that, that you and I, because we have limited information, we don't see the apparent purpose, but it's still there. It's apparent purpose. Is that right? Let me read for you. A guy that I respect a lot. I've read a lot of his commentaries. His name is Dr. Ben Witherington. And he lost his baby. And this is what he wrote right after he lost his baby. I'll quote him, quote. The first point that was immediately confirmed in my heart was theological. God did not do this to my baby. God is not the author of evil. God does not terminate sweet children's lives with pulmonary embolisms. Pulmonary embolisms are a result of human fallenness and the bent nature of this world. That's what I believe. That those kinds of things happen because of the fall and the repercussions that the fall did to this world. And God doesn't need those things to teach us a lesson. Can he use them? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Final question. All things happen for a reason. True or false? No one's going to answer me right now. I'm not going to answer that question. When we say stuff like that, what we mean is this. It's a, it's a way of saying that whatever has happened in my life has happened because God has some kind of way of weaving it into something, right? That all things happen for a reason. I mean, really all? So last night, you binging on Netflix for eight hours, all things happen for a reason. Really? Right? You failing to put fuel in your car and going up on a mountain getting stuck in the snow. 
All things happen for a reason, really? How about you just didn't put fuel in your car, right? You don't change your oil and your car breaks, blows up, really? So I think you always have to kind of ask, what am I trying to say by this when I say all things happen for a reason? The best example I have is this. Happened a number of years ago to a football player. His name is Laramie Tunsil. Great athlete, phenomenal football player. He's coming out of college. He's going to be drafted. He was going to be drafted either one, two, three, or four, or five. He was on everyone's draft board. They wanted him. Totally good football player. 10 minutes before the draft, his Twitter account is hacked. There's posted a picture, a, a clip of him smoking pot with a gas mask. All of a sudden, he falls off all the top five teams, their, their list, and he tumbles out of the top 10. They say that little hack cost him $16 million. Woo! His response was this. Man, the world is crazy. All things happen for a reason, end quote. Now, I'm partially like amazed at this man that he would respond that way. Because if I missed out on $16 million, I would not respond that way. You don't want to know how I would respond. I couldn't tell you right now how I would respond. Like, I'm like, man, that is, you're a really mature dude, because I would not respond that way. But the other thing is like, really? Did God want that to happen? Did God want you to smoke pot and then your Twitter account to be hacked 10 minutes before and you to lose all that? Is that what you're trying to say? Is that what we're trying to say from those things? Because here's what it is. It is actually a perversion of a biblical truth. It's a perversion of Romans 8.28. But does Romans 8.28 say, all things happen for a reason? No. What does Romans 8.28 say? All things work together for good to those that love God and are the called according to to his purpose. Is that all things happen for a reason? Not at all. No way. So it gets perverted and twisted and becomes something it's not. That there are things that happen in our world that God would say, I don't want that to happen. Do you know that? I'll give you an example. And here's the big poke for a lot of us. This is one that poked me hard and caused me to reconsider some of the stuff. It's Jeremiah. You can look there if you want. It's one of the passages that I have just thought through and thought through and thought through for hours on this idea of do things occur that God says, I didn't want that to occur. And it has all these ramifications. What does that mean? But listen to this text. Listen to what it says. It's actually two times in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, 33, listen to what this says carefully. If you're mad at me, just read this. <laughs> they have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. 
my people, even though I love them and I've cared for them and I've taught them, they are now sacrificing their children outside the city of Jerusalem. Listen to what God says. Though I did not command it, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. What did God just say right there? The killing of babies outside my city. I never told them to do that. And I didn't even think they would. That's a radical thought. When we say all things happen for a reason and we start using that as a theology of life, then you have to say, okay, then the abortion of 55 million babies in America, God must have wanted that to happen too. All things happen for a reason. Really? I think God would say, Jeremiah 32, 33 through 35, uh-uh, no way. I don't want that to happen. Then rape and molesting and all that, it all then falls into this. No way, no way. I think Jeremiah 32 is God's answer to say, no way, no way. Okay, Matt, you have completely confused me on suffering. Perfect, that's what I wanted to do. Because Habakkuk is confused and it's the fact that he's confused and begins to cry out and wrestle with God that leads to a brilliant end. Sometimes I think we need to be confused. Sometimes I think we need to retest the structure that we look at life in, okay? But Matt, I don't understand because the New Testament seems to look at suffering like it has good to it. Oh, totally, totally. Romans 5, I rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And when I've got hope, then there's the possibility that through God's spirit, his love would be shed abroad. That's good suffering. James 1, my brothers count it all joy when you suffer because the trying of your faith produces patience and let patience have her perfect work that you might be complete, entire, lacking nothing, that the cancer of this world that's devoured us, somehow suffering can repair us and make us complete again. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 17, these light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working for us. They're our slave, if you would. They're working for us. They're employees of us and they're working in us an exceeding eternal weight of glory. Yeah, there's great text like that. Then what's the deal, Matt? How do you put those two together? You're saying like suffering isn't from God. It doesn't seem like it's from, but yet the New Testament says it really has a good purpose to it. Here's what I believe. Paul knew the Old Testament. And Paul, in reading the Old Testament, realized, look at all these stories of what God did through suffering. So I'm going to briefly take you on a trip. It's called biblical theology. We're just going to run through the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you over and over where you see this pattern of what God does with suffering and evil and injustice and bad stuff. So turn with me, if you can, to Genesis 50, 20. The text for this idea. Listen to what this says. As for you, you meant evil against me. Do you know that sometimes people are in the evil empire and what they mean against you is evil? 
you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is Genesis 50, 20? Who's it talking about? Joseph. What's Joseph's story? Betrayed by his 10 brothers, sold into slavery. In slavery, works his tail off, falsely accused of rape, imprisoned for years, helps out these people. They forget about him year after year after year. And then after 20 years, he's elevated to prime minister. What Joseph says here is this. God didn't cause you to betray me. You meant it evil against me. You weren't robots. You weren't forced to do this. But God is great enough to take those evil actions and to turn them around for good. It's what I call judo theology. That God takes the very momentum of evil, the things that are meant against him, and God turns it and uses it for his good. That God is great enough and powerful enough to even take an evil action like betrayal and slavery and false imprisonment and use it for his glory and goodness. Not that God needed that. Aseity, he doesn't need anything. But God is great enough to actually turn it for good. All right? Here's another one. Deuteronomy. Last message of Moses. Deuteronomy 23, look what Moses says in verse 5. But Yahweh, your God, would not listen to Balaam. Instead, Yahweh, your God, turned the curse into a blessing for you because God, Yahweh, your God, loved you. Balaam was this dude that was hired to curse the nation of Israel. God took that curse, took that dude that was hired to curse Israel. Instead, he changed him and instead a blessing came out. Judo theology, right? Esther, Esther 9.22. You guys know the story of Esther. Esther is elevated to a position of prominence because there's a really bad dude. His name is Haman. Haman is a picture, a type of Hitler, a man that wants to see God's people destroyed. But then Esther comes on the scene, changes this, everything, Changes it around from a death sentence to chapter 9, verse 22. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. What was supposed to be a holocaust, literally, God changed it into a holiday in Esther 9, 22. Psalm 30, verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears. You ever feel like you're sowing in tears? Shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. Isaiah 61, probably the most poetic way of saying Judo theology. Listen to this. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, 
the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. Verse seven, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. There is a theme that's woven all the way through the Old Testament, and it's this. God didn't cause evil. God is the author of evil, but God can use evil and change it for good. It's over and over and over again. Jesus puts it like this in the New Testament. It's John 16. And in verse 20, he says this. It's about the cross. This thing that is causing you sorrow, the cross, is going to be turned into joy. The very thing that caused you sorrow will be the thing that brings you joy. And then he gives this illustration. It's like a woman when she's in travail and childbirth. There's pain and there's agony and there's sorrow and it's hard and it's difficult. And then the baby is born and there's joy. The very thing that caused the sorrow and agony and hardship and tears and tearing and ah, then becomes the things that brings you joy. Like I can remember the very first moment I held my firstborn, Carissa Jaden, in my arms. I immediately forgot all about the pain. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'll get it for my wife when I get home. You have no idea. Five times. <laughs> I joke, man. It's true. After the first one, I went in for the second one, and my wife, all natural, all five kids. Second one, I said, could I have the epidural? If she's not going to take it, I'll take it. I mean, this is brutal. <laughs> it's amazing. But the thing that caused you pain is transformed into the thing that brings you joy. That's the power and the greatness of our God. That's what he's able to do. And that's what the Old Testament just shows. Look at all these things. Look at how God has done that, right? So no, God isn't the author of suffering. Hold on a second, Matt. You forgot one major story in the Old Testament. One of the biggest stories, what the prophets are always talking about, what Habakkuk is talking about. It's when God brings the nation of Babylon into Jerusalem and ransacks the city and there's untold horror and God was the author of that. God caused that. What about that, Matt? Oh, absolutely. Here's what you see in the Bible. God will use evil like Babylon, an evil empire. He will use evil to judge evil. And Israel at the time of Habakkuk, Jeremiah tells us they were sacrificing their kids to Moloch. And God said, no more. You have become evil in my sight. Read Ezekiel. You are evil now. You used to be my people. I have been working with you for hundreds and hundreds of years, wooing you to myself, saying, repent. And instead, you're killing your babies. You become evil. So God will take evil and use it to judge evil. And then Babylon then gets judged and it just goes down the line. And in fact, Revelation says this, the end of the story is, Revelation 17 and 18, evil eats itself. That's Revelation 17 and 18. Finally, evil judges itself and just destroys itself. And Babylon falls once and for all. So yeah, yeah, God will use evil to judge evil, right? Well, Matt, 
if God wants Genesis 1 and 2, and God wants Revelation 21 and 22, where there is no suffering and there is no evil and there's none of that, why doesn't he just get rid of all the evil then? Why not? If God got rid of all the evil, he would also have to get rid of everyone that causes evil. People that gossip about each other and cause strife and contention. People that lie about each other and cause pain. People that are deceptive. People that are greedy. God's gonna have to get rid of all the people that do evil. What happens to all of us in this room? Yeah. The only one that that is left is Myron, my five-year-old. And give him about a year, he's gone too, right? It's coming for him. Here's what the Bible says. It's 2 Peter 3, verse 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but wants all to come to repentance. So he's long-suffering. Because God says, I want as many of my kids as possible to join with me in New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, to rule and to reign with me forever. And so I am patient and I'm patient. One day that patience will run out, Revelation says. But right now he's patient. And I'll tell you what, I'm glad he's patient with me. And here's what I know about this world. The world with its joys and with its sorrows, with its happy times and with its hard times, with its wins and with its losses, all of those things are being used by God to create in me character, endurance, hope, patience, love, all that stuff that I will need to rule and reign with him forever. 2 Corinthians 4.17. These light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working in me and they're working in you and exceeding an eternal weight of glory that allows us to rule and reign with him forever. And when I understand that, that God doesn't require this and God didn't cause this, but God can sure use it. I say, okay, Jesus, use it. Use it. Use it. And every day, or every Sunday, I mean, we come to the table. And the table should remind you of this fact, that God can take the most hideous, violent thing ever. Everything Habakkuk complains about happened to Jesus. And that event becomes the crowning, redemptive act of God in all of creation. It becomes it. So when we come to the table, we remember that. No matter what suffering we're going through or no matter what injustice has happened to us, we eat and drink and we say, Jesus, I trust because of the cross that you can take the most unjust, evil act in my life and redeem it and do judo theology on it. And that these things are working in me and exceeding an eternal weight of glory. And I trust you. And you eat and drink of that. We get to celebrate that. We celebrate judo theology every Sunday because it's that important. But some of you might be in here and you might need prayer. Jesus, right before the cross, crushing suffering, It's the one time he asked his disciples to pray. James, John, Peter, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Come pray with me. If Jesus needed prayer in his suffering, we do too. And I don't know where you guys are at today. Maybe you're feeling crushed by suffering. After this service, we'll have some pastors up here 
some Titus II ladies up here. We'll have some elders up here. We'd love to pray for you because that's what you need sometimes. If Jesus needed it, how much more do you and I need it? I know in my life, I've had some suffering, not any worse than anybody else. I'm an average sufferer, but man, prayer sure helped me. So get prayer. So take communion and get prayer. So Jesus, this day, Suffering is one of the most perplexing problems. It's the foothold that the enemy gets into our heart to destroy your character. I pray that we would look boldly at the cross. Look boldly at you. And the deceit and the lies of the enemy would melt away by the truth of your love for us and your redemption for us. And how you took the worst event in history and made it the great statement of redemption. I pray for those in here who have suffered greatly. I ask that you would send your comforter to them and that their suffering could be transformed in such a way that it would be a great act of redemption, of redeeming in their own lives, like only you can do. And so I ask as we eat and as we drink, I pray that you would redeem suffering in our lives, turning it into gold, giving us beauty for ashes, double for our shame, turning tears into streams of hope, turning the valley of acre into a door of hope like only you can do. And I ask this in your name, amen.